0: The following Dharma talk was given by Jodi Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome. Um, It's nice to be back in the city. It feels like I've been here a while and I just came on Monday. Um, But it's great to be back. Um, I wanted to start with a line from Master Dogen um, that caught me and kind of addresses something I've been thinking about for a while. We'll see how this unfolds. He said, when you know the place where you are, practice begins. When you know the place where you are, practice begins. So what is this, what is the place where we are? What kind of location is he asking us to make? Recently, of course, many of us celebrated Thanksgiving, and... Um, it didn't quite match up to the history we might have learned when you dig a little deeper and see what that day, what events really happened on that, at that time. And many of us over the recent years have been looking into more deeply into the histories we have learned in many areas of our life, particularly the First Nation, Um, first settlers, and what we were taught. And we have to keep doing this. We have to keep looking at what we were taught and what's actually um, manifesting and what we have on our mind and really questioning what we learned. And this week I also saw a live performance by um, Alok Bad Menon, I don't know if you know them. Um, It was was a performance, but it was just a human being expressing their life with us in the most generous way. They're gender nonconforming. They're a writer, performance artist. This is what it says on their bio, but so much more a public speaker. We're always more gigantic than the things we do. And there was a ceremony this week for, um, in recognition of Transgender Day of Remembrance, and uh, reciting the names of 47 people. There are more um, whose lives were taken this year because of their gender, because of the things that we have learned. Um, in the beginning, Taisho um, Sarah Sands, who was leading the the uh, sangha, spoke of the. Um, we usually do a land acknowledgement, and I would like to uh, read um, what uh, Taisho read. As we gather here, we recognize that we are connected with one another through the winds that blow air into our lungs, and through the waters that move deep into the earth and up into the sky. We acknowledge that the ground beneath our feet is historically the home of indigenous people stolen by violence, coercion, and genocide. And those of us who are white have benefited by this greatly. We also hold this space for the many beings whose stories are left unsung, erased, or changed. And um, she also said, uh, someone asked Alok, um, how how do I help them? After hearing them speak, how do I help them? And Alok very skillfully turned the light back to the place of practice, and said, When you recognize them is you, you will know how to help. Which is similar, I think, to Dogen saying, When you know the place where you are, practice begins. When the 10,000 things, the myriad forms of diversity, is, are realized as this very body and mind then you, me, we will know how to help anyone because it will be helping ourselves at the same time. Until then, to at least practice in such a way, understand it and practice in such a way. I think when we think of this, what do you think of when you think of this New York City perhaps art, culture, finance, people. I don't know how many of us think about the indigenous people who lived here and how their energy is still present. And that we need to acknowledge that because it's part of, it's in our mix right now, all the people that lived here. And it's unceded land, it was stolen, taken, mostly the Lenape peoples, Lenape Hoken homeland this was. When you know the place where you are, practice begins. What is this place where we are? So none of us lives somewhere in general. It's impossible to do this. Even with all the industrialized sameness, that has moved through a place which has reduced our imagination, stripped away what was here before, the taste of the local, the indigenous. It's still deeply rooted here. And I don't think we live somewhere in particular. Our bodies express and register so intimately can we even say that any particular is not our own body? My teacher would repeat very often, this body and mind is the body and mind of the entire universe. Over and over and over. And we may know that and also have had experience of that opening up in us little by little, which... which. Increases our aspiration and our wanting to knowing that about ourselves to keep opening that further. The air we breathe and feel on our skin, the water we drink and bathe in, the smell of the soil, the plants springing from it, the weight of our footsteps met by the earth, the pressure of the earth. The shape of the land, the towering buildings we put up, the light of the sky. Do not overlook any of this. If we live in vagueness toward where we live, towards the place that lives us, actually, (laughs) to overlook this is to place our living in danger. So, Zen, which were the Zen school, It's a stream of what we call the Mahayana school of Buddhism where realization is ongoing, an ongoing profound intimacy with people, with sentient life, right where we are, as who we are. That's what the Mahayana teaches. It's never been seen or taught as a final or personal Transcendence of the joys and sorrows of our embodied life. It's really understanding what it is, the causes and conditions, and to feel to any ex- to feel this to any extent. We also have to feel how it is not possible to dream of turning away from the earth and the diversity upon it, which is nothing short of miraculous. And Buddha teaches Buddhism teaches this emptiness. I'm not going to go into it fully, but it's not like an empty trash can. Um, it's really empty of any inherent, fixed nature that we're all contingent, m- moving bodies, moving expressions. And um, <clears throat> what we learned was to fixate and to grasp and to make boxes of ourselves as we're moving on and that's the emptiness and because it's empty of anything thick fixed we can change we can have diversity because it's wide open all these expressions can come which is beautiful <laughs> but we don't always see it that way this, this protection of our own territory, this separation, this misunderstanding of who we are fundamentally is profound. It's, it's that thing that gets the wheel of causation turning, ignorance, that we don't understand who we are. And, based, and when there's greed, anger, and delusion driving it, we have to protect it more and more. Which rains havoc and harm upon differences. And this is born over and over until it's not, until we can go to the place of, pra- of place where we are and practice and understand our life. Now the first Bodhisattva arrives, Val arrives with a really indigenous consciousness right? And force, the vow to save the many beings, is a vow to save all our relations and all directions from our own sleep of ignorance and forgetfulness towards who we are and what this life is. That's the first bodhisattva vow. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them Knowing and being known by the place where you are is not a lot of information piling up. I thought it's more like Moses seeing the burning bush, seeing the fire that runs through all things. To see the bush burning is to stand in a world not isolated of things, but in, of processes in concert, as uh, that's said by William Bryant Logan. He wrote a book called Dirt. I don't know if you ever read it. It's a very good book. He said, Not isolated of things, but of processes in concert. It is to stand barefoot like the old saints on holy ground once more. As Dogen says, actually every stage of practice, including realization itself, forms and deepens a covenant with the earth, with the place where we are. So the I learned recently that the old legal meaning of covenant is a promise to the earth. That's a covenant. And I was listening to, oddly enough, a... Um, it was an interesting combination. Robin Kiminer, Kim, Kim, Kimmerer, who wrote um, Braided Sweetgrass, and Bjork, the singer, <laughs> were having a conversation about the environment. Um, they both have this deep respect for the earth and everything upon it. And they were speaking of it as this, reciproc- this covenant as reciprocity. That was the word... Which Bjork had very difficult time saying several times. Reciprocosity, reciprocity, reciprocosity. When we pay attention moment to moment being here, we pay respect to the earth. And the act of elemental kindness is met by another. The earth reciprocates. To touch The original ground of mind is to realize that this human body is the world. So practice is a very conscious recovery of what is indigenous and native. Born here, born here. It's a creative act. It's a real way to begin to say thank you, thank you for this life. Drop our self-concern in favor of paying attention to live in a constant thank you for how we are met. My gosh, just look at how you're met waking up and all the things that you have by the earth, by beings, by the insentient cats included. When the Buddha sat at the foot of a tree to attain realization and he touched the earth, he was returning to a more indigenous forest-dwelling state of mind. He recognized so many places and people have been left with negative mind states of greed, anger, and ignorance. I think the Buddha understood this kind of energetic power very clearly which he advised the monastics when they were chanting the uh, metta sutra to cope with the fear because when they were chanting they were haunted by these ghosts in the forest because the forest spirits were wondering what these people were doing in their in their place and The Buddha said, keep chanting the Karaniya Metta Sutra, the Loving-Kindness Sutra, because these vicious animals were troubling them in the forest. And I'll tell you that story sometimes. It's It's a good story. But Siddhartha sat in deep contemplation with the truth of suffering. He sat right there in his confusion to see the fuel that created dissatisfaction that created suffering. He sat right into it and he saw a key ingredient was missing in his practice, which was simple mindfulness, present time awareness, seeing the process of the body and mind more and more clearly. That's what he said was missing. And he vowed not to get up from his seat until He freed himself from all forms of misidentification, attachment, aversion, until totally free he wasn't moving. He wanted to see into and through the dream he suspected he was dreaming. Dreaming with everyone and everything. And then be free within it, because yeah, we hear this is a dream, we're dreaming it together. And can we see we're in it, and, and then how do we act within it once we see this is, this is the dream and we're making it together by how we use our minds? Can you imagine that kind of resolve? I mean, we sit a few periods, but I'm not getting up until I see through everything. I mean, a lot came before that for him. And this is what was transmitted to us here today. Resolve. Resolve. Turning back the light in our place of practice. Seeing the causes of suffering and confusion. That's what was transmitted. Among other things. Happiness, too. Feeling this breath as it comes and goes. Investigating the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral, right? As these thoughts come up, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral tone of each, what is each thought, feeling, sensation, and then opening our awareness more compassionately to ourselves, not trying to stop experience no matter how it feels, rather meeting each moment with, that loving-kindness and trust. That's possible. This part about not trying to stop experience no matter how it feels and just to sit in and face it and see its tone and know that there are causes and conditions that this is arising in us. See it very clearly. We can do this. In the sutras, it says, Gautama found his immovable spot. I like that. The unconquerable position. You're in it now. (laughs) When you know the place where you are, practice begins. And we also know of that demon-like part of us, which I spoke of before, Mara. I remember... um, (laughs) It's kind of a little tangent, but one of our residents was asked to go to the hardware store and had a long list of items to get. (laughs) And they were telling me they went to the hardware store and there was a, in this case, he was a young man, a young woman was helping and they were, instantly quite attractive to them and they said oh I have this very long list and together they went through the store and they even added a few more items that weren't needed and at the end they said (laughs) they said they were doing this debate because they were in residency and they know they're supposed to watch what they're doing with people on the outside how they're relating but couldn't resist and decided to ask their name because they were hoping maybe something would come of it. <laughs> and they said, what's your name? And, and they had been reading um, the Avasantaka Sutra and a- at morning at breakfast, they were proliferating about Mara and who Mara is. And when they asked their name, they said, Mara. <laughs> <laughs> and they said they grabbed their bag and they left very quickly. <laughs> So, (laughs) Mara is that what comes to us, that aspect of our mind that comes to us that will stop at nothing to sabotage our resolve to be fully free from suffering and dissatisfaction. And we all know Mara in us, right? Mara mind. All our strong negative emotions, and when we take it personally, and how it causes us to turn away from ourselves further, to suffer. So Mara approaches the Buddha and says, get up from the seat. Now you can be sitting there too this morning, and a part of your mind says, what are you doing? Get up from the seat. This is not your seat. By whose authority, Mara says, do you sit there? It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. And Gautama had seen enough to recognize Mara Mind as just another phenomena that arises and passes. He emerged to say, no, uh uh-uh. This seat does not belong to you. It belongs to me. This is my immovable spot. So once we know the place of practice, we can remember that Anywhere we are, anywhere we're walking, this is my immovable spot. I'm in it. And to prove this resolve, there's that gesture where Buddha touches down to the earth and said, this earth is my witness. So there's statues that are the earth witness Buddha. I love that one, because whenever I feel unseated, Or threatened in some way for being who I am, I remember the earth witness. I touch down and hold that as my as my being. Anytime I think of that or recreate that it settles me into my place. Buddha was cleanly aware that the earth has consciousness and bears witness to karma. So we're all practicing something. Everyone on this earth is practicing something. The question is, what? (laughs) What are we practicing? And zazen is our human conversation with this earth. It's our connection or our separation that it shows us that connection or that separation with the earth, with this very body. Emerging from his enlightenment experience, Buddha exclaimed, seeing the morning star, all beings and I have attained the way at once, have at once attained the way. In that saying, all things, all beings are perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The moment of his realization, he realized that's the nature of every single thing. And we need some improvement, that's there too. We need some work. (laughs) So when we sit down, we have this chance to resume our relationship with our body and mind and this very earth, our elemental nature. We grow quiet and still to listen do some asking, do a bit of atoning and thanking. So here we are on State Street, this neighborhood and surrounding area. Do you know about this place? So I wanted to say what the vibe is that still is here and that we know we need to know as part of our system, our nervous system. Our mind state. And I spoke to a Sangha member, George. He's a professor of Native American history. And I asked I was asking him about Thanksgiving and its roots, because I was like, this this is what I heard and he was like, uh no, sorry. It's not at all what I learned. He said, Not even close. And he wrote back, When I teach Native American history, I always begin by saying, after first contact, it starts really bad. And then it gets worse. He said, after studying human history for more than a half a century, I wonder if there is a square meter of land on this entire planet that hasn't been stained with innocent blood. State Street is no exception. Then very importantly, he said, fortunately, the same square meters are also drenched in kindness, compassion, and love. So, if we want to understand U.S. history, we do have to understand indigenous history. No matter where we are in the U.S., we are standing on native land. Someone's ancestors were forced off this land we now occupy, whether... We acknowledge that or not. And to touch this, if we don't touch this, it remains lurking in one of those dark corners that we'd rather not go to. It's like cleaning our bathroom. I use that example a lot. How we don't want to go in certain places. And we need to get to them to really clean deeply. So over 50,000 years ago, if you can imagine right where we are, this neighborhood lies beneath a quarter mile of ice at the base of a glacier that spanned the continent. We went to Inwood Park and you could see how that was on the stones and the markings of the ice moving. The Lenape mig- migrated to what is now New York City about 3,000 years ago, and there were nearly 20,000 Lenape. Manhattan and Brooklyn were largely the Muncie. The Lenape land, or Lenape Lop- 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 Hokan included parts of what is now New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. And then Europeans arrived in about the 1600s and started colonizing this land, taking an unforgivable human toll to do that. Lenape people were brutalized by European conquest and there is also a combo of new diseases that came and the natural history of the land was, of the continent was altered. George said, before first contact and many generations afterwards, indigenous people lived in village-based communities, mobile groups of families, some shared blood relations, and in other cases, it was quite multi-ethnic. He said systematic slavery began in 1626 in New York when 11 captive Africans arrived on the Dutch West India Company ship in the new Amsterdam, New York Harbor. And that, too, continued. And then there were many others. He said that he said they would think of the seventh generation principle that decisions that involve the land must be sustainable for seven generations to come. So we are borrowing our resources from our descendants now. They embodied a more stewardship role in the way they treat the land, plants, and wildlife, which is what they passed on to us. This is George saying that. The colonists arrived using deception and forced migration of native people further and, and sent them further and further west. They were, the Lenape were initially pu- pushed to Ohio, Oklahoma, Indiana, Kansas. So this is the mind energy that was left behind, one of f- forcing coercion, genocide, and also on the same square meters, kindness, compassion, and love. So, as we move through Brooklyn and New York, we can imagine this, if we haven't. In a 1946 historical map, I hope this is interesting to you, it was interesting to me, but Flatbush, Atlantic, and Division Avenues, as well as Fulton Street, were built on old Lenape hunting and walking paths. They were villages, Lenape villages. Broadway was a Lenape trading route. Trader Joe's, on the corner of state and court, was Washington's headquarters. So when you go to Trader Joe's, (laughs) that's who was right there, thinking these things. During the Battle of Long Island, the summer of 1776, the Continental Army retreated through Boreham Hill after the British conducted an end run through the pass through the Gowanus Heights. You can bet that some American, British, and German soldiers and Native Americans died around State Street. Actually, a small war broke out on State Street. They called, between the Lenape and the British, called the Pig War, where a pig wandered into a British field and ate some of their crops. So there was a a war over this pig right here on State Street. And this area where we're sitting has great access to water, as we know. Lenape's used this access to gather proteins from the estuaries, fish, traps, crabbing. They had dugout canoes right here, 40 feet long. It would be easy to imagine State Street as an agricultural site under the supervision mainly of Lenape women. They grew the three sister crops of corn, beans, and squash. Right here. Right here where you sit. Corn, beans, and squash. Women had a major political role. Although the Europeans who left records often looked past them, failed to recognize their places in Lenape society as ambassadors, politicians, peace advocates, and cultural brokers. They were also important healers with a vast knowledge of plant-based remedies, which the colonists actually valued. So if you're a person looking for a fertile place to set up camp, the area around Brooklyn Heights would have been perfect if you're living there. Close to water, good food sources, good lines of sight. Garon's Creek was for the same reason. And during the 20th century, more recently, Mohawk men and their families came to New York City to train as iron workers. The Euro-Americans spread a rumor that um, Native people were unafraid of heights. So the Mohawk took advantage of that and got a lot of work. Um, they built skyscrapers. They, the Empire State Building was built by the Mohawk. The Chrysler Building. They lived with their families in Borough Hill and returned to their reservations in Canada on a seasonal basis. That part of Brooklyn became known as Little, Kanawaga after their homeland. You know that place? I don't know. I don't either. And this temple was built in the 1800s. We know that during the Depression era, it was a funeral home. So we're in the same business. Um, you are sitting in a funeral home. We think that's why the floors slanted because the coffin was probably up here, and it went into where I sit Dyson room. There was a dummy waiter there where it went up to the Buddha hall floor. hope this doesn't turn you away. (laughs) And that's where the bodies were prepared, up there. I met a woman who's... She was one time, I opened the door, and she was... I said, hello, and she was doing this. And I said, do you want to come in? And she says, my mom was laid up here. And I was like, oh. (laughs) So... And it was, when we got it, it was a Baptist meeting house, and uh, half of it was a Union of Democracy meeting place. And then we got the whole place in 2000 as Fire Lotus Temple. When you know the place where you are, practice begins. An aboriginal elder woman said, reality is connectedness. If you're not connected... You're not in reality. Dogen said, realization is not a set of understandings, but mind opening and dropping away to the ongoing fact of being reality, unborn and inextinguishable, nowhere but here, no time but now. So a practice like Buddha Dharma is a great chance to wake up to ourselves and cease being able to live by damage. It's not a personal consciousness project, that's the start, but it stretches to a wi- the widest possible belonging for everyone in this unrepeatable human body in this unrepeatable place, actualizing this in all the aware gestures and choices of our lives. It's good to know, and this very body and mind is the body and mind of the universe, but we need to keep examining and seeing where we make those separations. I was watching an interview with the Dalai Lama, and, and they bought a pizza for him. They said, it's vegetarian. And the um, the person at the interview kept saying, we made you one with everything. We made you one with everything. And Dalai Lama wasn't biting it at all. <laughs> he wasn't going for that joke. <laughs> because I think he knew it's like, that's easy to say. You know, he got it, but... He took a bite of the pizza and he made this face like, very interesting, <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> and the, the interviewer was like, I don't want to eat it. <laughs> you know, I don't like that. The Dharma is wanting to stand up here in this loomy, dark soil, interwoven with sunblaze and skyscrapers, pigeons, vivid tones of our past karma. At every stage of Buddhist practice, including realization itself, we may see how we naturally form and deepen a covenant with the earth and all the inhabitants with no beginning and no end. Really attuning in a very unhurried way. Patience, really Patience, a timeless kind of patience, which is not inactive. It's not waiting. It's an active patience, because we're tested almost hourly in our patience. And I found this, one of these tiny, cohen like Hasidic tales uh, Martin Buber told. I like to read him sometimes. It goes... After the great Majid's death, his disciples came together and talked about the things he had done. When it was Rabbi Schnur Shalman's turn, he asked them, Do you know why the teacher went to the pond every day at dawn and stayed there for a while before coming home again? They did not know why. Rabbi Zalman continued, He was learning the song with the frogs praise God, which the frogs praise God. He was learning the song with which the frogs praise God. It takes a very long time to learn that song, which is why it was so pressing. So I'll conclude with a verse from a Neruda poem called Keeping Quiet. Now we will count to 12 or 10 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would be together in a sudden strangeness. When you know the place where you are, practice begins we would all be together in a sudden strangeness and perhaps see each other. That's the strangeness. Where is this place where practice begins? Well, we should find out. And as often said, don't go further than the tip of your nose. So thank you. And have a great day. Thanks for being here, practicing together. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.